If you have a copy of God's Word this Memorial Day weekend, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And as you open this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll immediately see that the, this section of Scripture is about fasting. So uh, some of you are already thinking, I've got really big lunch plans right now that I've got a I've got a barbecue that I'm planning for tomorrow and you're going to ruin it by fasting you're going to you're going to talk about a fasting sermon and again I do want you to hear clearly that if you're physically able to fast I think God's word clearly invites us to be men and women who fast and pray but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to fast and pray after the preacher talks about fasting and prayer Uh, you don't have to do it this next So I'm going to take some of that guilt I've already had in the first service. A lot of people say, you've messed up my barbecue plans here. So I I want to to give you permission to to not worry about that, but to listen closely to God's word. Fasting seems so remote in some respects when we think about it in our culture. I mean, really think about how often in my own life, I had been a Christian for six years, and I do not remember hearing a message about fasting until I got into college. And it was an invitation of a book. It wasn't really even a message. It was Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, that wonderful classic book that opened up the spiritual disciplines to me that I really even began to consider fasting. And I grew up in a a wonderful godly church that preached God's word, but it just wasn't a subject that I heard regularly talked about. It seemed to me, at least in my own teenage mind, that fasting was something that the spiritual Navy SEALs did. That, of course, fasting historically had been done, and maybe monks and nuns, that they practiced that. But the ordinary, just 99% of Christians, that that we really did not have to be men and women of of fasting and prayer. Now, it's interesting that as the church seemed to be more and more silent about our heritage of fasting, the culture seemed to be much more clear about the benefits of fasting. You cannot go one week in 2019 without a peer-studied scientific journal article that is touting the physical benefits of fasting. You cannot get on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and not see a celebrity athlete or a celebrity um, uh, actress or actor talking about their fasting regimen. Fasting is fashionable in 2019. Now, it's not necessarily the spiritual component of fasting that is being touted, but rather the physical attributes and physical benefits of fasting. So I want us to see that, that long before fasting was fashionable, that the very heartbeat of the Jewish practice of faith and the Christian practice of faith had fasting and prayer at the very center of a pursuit of God. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18 remind us that there is an expectation of Christian fasting. Notice Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
Now notice as a disclaimer, Jesus is not talking about a spiritual slim fast here. He is not first and foremost in any stretch of the imagination talking about the physical benefits of fasting as he's talking about the spiritual entry point to pursue God in fasting and prayer. The fasting is a spiritual discipline that increases our spiritual appetite for the glory of God. Notice an expectation of Christian fasting. Notice that we read in verse 16, and when you fast. Notice in verse 17, but when you fast. The context of this section is important for you to remember because Matthew chapter 6 has two beginning emphases that talk about secret giving, secret praying, then we have the Lord's Prayer, and then we come back to what? Fasting. These three spiritual disciplines of giving, of praying. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, we read, well, we read, and when you give. And then in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, we read, and when you pray. So there's an expectation of a follower of Christ to be a person who regularly gives and regularly prays and does that in such a way that doesn't draw attention to themselves. Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, and then he comes back to that refrain of praying and of giving, and now he's going to talk about fasting. Now, he doesn't have to say, oh, this is what fasting is all about, because those original hearers of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount knew exactly what fasting was about. In the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement had become an annual day of fasting in their day then. Uh, the faithful Pharisees of the day, they would fast two times a week. They would fast on Monday and on Thursday. So the audience that Jesus is originally given the Sermon on the Mount to, they didn't need to have a primer on fasting. It was very much a part of the ebb and flow of their life. Now, of course, in this section of scripture, he is condemning fasting that is done to be showy, fasting that is done to show off, but he doesn't condemn the practice of fasting. Now, some of you might say, well, what about a couple of chapters later? What about when the religious leaders of the day were questioning Jesus about his lack of fasting and his disciples' lack of fasting? Well, let's just look at that passage. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. You see it on the screens here. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But notice their questions. But your disciples, they do not fast. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. When is the bridegroom taken away from the disciples? At his resurrection, and most particularly at his ascension, Jesus' ascension, where he's seated at the right-hand throne of the Father. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm with them here when I am ascended after my resurrection, then there will be an expectation of their fasting. And Jesus' expectation of Christian fasting, it just picks up this great chorus all throughout the Bible. You start in the Old Testament, and you see Moses coming down from Sinai after the covenant renewal, and the first thing he does is he fasts. Jehoshaphat fasts for direction and deliverance against the invading armies that are coming upon him. Queen Esther, you remember that wonderful story of, of Esther where you have this arch 
villain named Haman who is plotting to exterminate all of God's people there. And and Esther is placed in the kingdom as the queen for such a time as this. And she is going to go to King Xerxes to let him know what is occurring behind his back. And she fasts and she prays and she gets her servants to do that with her as she goes to approach the king, Ezra. Turning the Israelites back into Jerusalem after exile, and they humbled themselves and they fast and they pray. Jesus, before his earthly ministry, 40 days, 40 nights, where he prays and he fasts. We have even in the New Testament, early church, Paul's on his way when he is Saul still. God meets him on that Damascus road. The first thing that he does after his conversion, three days where he fasts. And he prays the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13 before they send out Paul and Barnabas. As Gentile missionaries, they do what? They fast and pray and then they lay their hands upon them. After you have the writing of the New Testament in that first century world, you have the earliest Christian document that we still have, which is called the Didache. And that document talks about early Uh, second century, late first century, that the early Christians of that day, they practiced fasting, not like the faithful Pharisees did. The faithful Pharisees, if Jesus' day, they fasted on Mondays and on Thursdays. The early Christians, they fasted two days a week, Tuesday and Friday. So it doesn't seem that the early church said, you know something, fasting was something that we're going to leave behind and that apostolic age where the the disciples, the apostles, and now we're here on our own. And you know something, the the, the Christian church, the history of the Christian church is a history of God moving in mighty ways through men and of women who sought the Lord in prayer by fasting. Martin Luther, great reformer, Germany's aflame with the gospel, And it is through Luther's faithful fasting, his faithful faster. Uh, John Calvin there in France, he faithfully fasts. John Knox, that wonderful Scottish reformer where he says, give me Scotland or I will die, was a person who faithfully fasted. You have John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who is a person who faithfully fasts. You have Jonathan Edwards at the first great awakening in colonial America, who is a person who faithfully fasts fast as a great theologian and also pastor. And we can think of countless men and women whose names are not in church history books, who God has used in mighty ways as they bend their knee before him in prayer and in fasting. There was an expectation of Christian fasting that we see clearly in the Bible and in the early church and even in our own history. And then also you see in your copy of God's word, the purpose of Christian fasting. Notice how Jesus says, first, in this passage, he doesn't give an extended definition of what fasting was. Now, why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he say, and when you fast, and for everybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about here, let me tell you what a fast is. Well, they all knew what he was talking about. Now, in our world, there can be some misconceptions, but in the Bible, when we talk about fast, when we talk about a fast, we are, we're really talking about an abstaining from food and for a shorter period of time abstaining at times from water to seek the Lord in prayer. We see this even in the etymology of the first meal that we have of the day. It is what? It is a break fast. We're breaking the fast from the night before. 
So there is a lot of abstinence that can occur that we talk about fasting. We're, we're fasting from chocolate. Well, really, we're just abstaining from chocolate. Or we're, uh, we're fasting from social media. We're fasting from the radio. But really, when we talk biblically about fasting, what the Bible talks about with fasting is abstaining from food to be able to seek the Lord in prayer. Now, what would be some of the purposes? I love this book by Donald Whitney. It's really a, a, a modern Christian classic called Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. And he takes this from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He puts it together and he says, these are the biblical purposes of fasting throughout Scripture here. I just want you to see it. I want you to see it on the screen behind me. That people fasted in the Bible to seek God's guidance. That they fasted in the Bible to express grief over loss. They fasted to seek deliverance or protection. They fasted to express repentance and to return to God. They fasted to humble themselves and, and before God, they, they fasted to express concern for the work of God and justice for the oppressed and the poor. They, they fasted to minister to the needs of others. This is one of the reasons that in the prophets they were condemning the fast because they were fasting, but they weren't concerned about the bondage of those who were poor and who were outcast here. And so we discover uh, eighthly here that we, the people fasted to overcome temptation. And to dedicate themselves to God. And finally, and maybe in an encompassing statement, the ninth reason that one would fast was to express their love and worship to God. And that, that last statement really just encompasses all those previous eight purposes. That a person would fast to express their love and worship to God. It is, it is a physical way of saying God. I want to connect my body to my soul, my body to my spirit. And as I physically feel hunger pains, I'm asking you as the bread of life to spiritually feed me. It is a way of saying there, there are often times that we can ignore the work of God in our lives. We can ignore the work of God in our lives by noise, 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 noise. There's always something playing. There's always something that, that crowds out the silence where God could speak to us in that still small voice. And there are times that we can ignore the work of God by, by just sort of comforting ourselves with the next meal and just moving forward, living in an unexamined life. When you fast, you are putting a big pause on something that is healthy and normal for your life, which is food. And you're asking God in that moment where you're, where you're breaking the normal patterns and rhythms of your life and there's nothing evil about what you're going to eat in the morning or what you'll eat at lunch or what you'll eat at dinner. There's nothing bad about those things, but you're saying, God, I want to put a pause in the normalcy of my life to seek you through prayer. Fasting isn't an end to itself. It's always fasting connected to prayer and asking you when I abstain from food, that you would feed me spiritually as I repent of sin or seek guidance or worship you or grieve over what is occurring in life. There, there are multi-purposes to what a Christian could fast over, but you see here that there is a purpose to Christian fasting, which is more than just, well, it's more than just what Jesus is condemning that the Pharisees were doing. And that leads us to our final point, our motivation for Christian fasting. And he starts with the wrong motivation. Look again at verse 16 here. He says, don't fast 
and look gloomy. Some of your translations say look somber. He says, don't disfigure your faces like the faithful Pharisees were doing there. This was a way that they would fast so everybody could see, look at me and look what I'm doing. So in the midst of a fast, they were disfiguring their faces. They, they looked somber and they, they looked in a way because why? They wanted other people to see what they were doing. Just like Jesus says, don't pray to be seen. Don't give to be seen. Now he's joining that course of spiritual disciplines and saying, don't fast to be seen. In opposition, notice what he says. He says, anoint your head and wash your face. Is there anything spiritual about that? The answer is no. What he is saying here is clean yourself up. Look normal. Don't go around being a, a spiritual broadcast for what you're doing in your spiritual discipline here. Uh, fasting is never intended to be a spiritual production that you put on before people. Martin Luther, that great German reformer, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he said it this way, that fasting for the Pharisees had become a device for having people look at them and talk about them and admire them and say in astonishment, oh, what wonderful saints these people are. They don't live like other ordinary people. They go around in gray coats with their heads hanging down and a sour, pale expression on their faces. If such people do not get to heaven, what will become the rest of us? See, it was a way to parade as a production your spiritual life to those that are around. And so if God leads you through the power of the Holy Spirit, if he leads you to fast and to abstain from food, it isn't proper for us to go around telling everybody what we're doing. They need to see the work and the fruit that is produced in love and joy and peace and repentance and a hunger for his righteousness more than the the unrighteousness of the world. They need to see a change in our, but that's the fruit of the fast that they see. It's interesting. We live in a day where you can, you can exercise and while you're exercising, you can sort of let everybody know you're exercising. You can, you can sort of broadcast that before. And, and I didn't say this illustration here because I, I thought it might be a little too close to our early service right here. Maybe some of you do this, but I don't think as many of you do this. But uh, that you, can, you can tell everybody, look how far I've run. You, you can get a bumper sticker that says that you thought about running a mile and you can put it on the back of your car right now. I mean, we just have so much information about uh, our exercise habits, and you can, you can instantaneously post all of that. And what Jesus is saying is, is let, let that spiritual exercise not be something you're broadcasting, but let them see the results of that spiritual exercise. The results they'll see. They'll see that your clothes fit differently. They'll see that there, there seems to be something different. You have more energy. And spiritually, that's what Jesus is saying is, is don't, don't let the fast be the end unto itself, but let it be a means by which they see your life and the change in your life as you are fasting and after you fast. Now, now what does this mean for us today? Because we don't talk about fasting often in our culture, especially within the Christian church, I think it's important for us to say that God invites us to fast and he uses fasting as a means to transform us and make us grow in godliness. So guess what? There is an enemy and he doesn't want you to fast. He wants you to ignore this. He wants you to come up with a whole list why it isn't proper for you. And even if someone fasts, he still distorts and twists it. And I see two 
And there's, there's probably an infinite amount, but there are, real, there are really two distortions that I really need to talk about real quickly. And the first is that we live in a culture that is very body-focused. And we live in a society, whether it's covers on magazines or athletes or actresses and actors, where there's an ideal body type that oftentimes can be an unhealthy person who has an unhealthy relationship to food. And someone, especially someone who is, who's young, I would really want you to hear that this is not a spiritual blanket to give you permission to spiritually go down a road where you're justifying an unhealthy relationship with food and you're malnourished or maybe even struggling with the eating disorder. And I think it's just important to say that as you're fasting, you do not need to broadcast that to everyone. But Jesus is not prohibiting a spiritual mentor from walking with you and thinking carefully about the health connections to your fasting and, and how that could bring, especially the, in, in a younger generation, an unhealthy relationship to food. So we want to say that is a distortion. And the second danger, uh, this weekend there's a, a, a live picture, it's, it's um, Aladdin, the movie Aladdin, there's a, there's a new movie with Aladdin and the genie in the bottle is not, uh, it's not Robin Williams, but it's Will Smith. And at times we can think of fasting as sort of a spiritual genie in the bottle. We can think of fasting as a spiritual good luck charm. And what I mean by that is, is sometimes we think that if we have a desire and that desire is something we really, really believe in, that if we combine prayer with fasting, then he must grant whatever our desire is. And I want you to hear that the primary purpose of fasting is for you to be in a posture where you're saying, not my will, but thy will be done. The whole purpose of fasting isn't you coming to God saying, this is my wish list of things that I need for you to grant. And so I'm going to show you how sincere I am. Now grant these wishes and do them very quickly in this order here. That's, that, that's antithetical to the whole purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting is less of you and more of him. It is repentance of sin. It is saying not your, my will, but your will be done here. And I want to commend fasting to you. If you're physically able to fast, I want to commend the practice of fasting to you. There's, there's so much more that could be said about that. And I don't have the time to say it. But what I do want to lead you to is that we have, here at Dawson, we have something that is called afterthoughts. It's a wonderful way for you to get more information about the sermon. And a sermon like fasting has to be thought about in a particular way. There are things about blood pressure. There are things about uh, our health that would be prohibitive for us to fast. And some, some of us cannot fast. And we just need to know that that's okay. The Lord's not upset with us about that. But there are many of us that could. Well, how would we start that process? 
Well, tomorrow morning, if you're not subscribed to Afterthoughts, I want to encourage you to do that. And there's an email that goes out every Monday morning. And on this email, there is a document that Dawson produced. It's a pamphlet on fasting and prayer. So helpful. 20 pages. You'll see the PDF. And it gives you an invitation. And not only the why, but the how of fasting. They're wonderful books that I have linked on that. They're wonderful articles that I have linked on that. And they're wonderful podcasts that get into the specificity of your life. And I wanna encourage you to be a part of that tomorrow afternoon. But I, I wanna just stop here and I wanna give a testimony because I think oftentimes we, and this is not a testimony. I've really wrestled with this because is this, am I, am I doing the very thing that Jesus says not to do here? And I think the answer to this is I prayed about this and thought about this and talked to Danielle about this was, I'm not fasting here right now, and I'm not telling you I'm fasting, I'm not asking you, but I, I do want to show you and to tell you that fasting is powerful, and God, God has used that in, in my life, and he's used it in a way that's very particular to why I'm standing here today, and as I prayed about it and I thought about it, I, I just think it needs to, at times, to hear these positive testimonies of how God moves in ways, and hopefully you'll hear my heart in this. Oftentimes people ask me, how, how did you get here? How, how did you become the pastor at Dawson? And, and obviously you had a search team and we had conversations and those conversations went to where it went to the next conversation. And I see Mike Hathorn over here and just wonderful men and women that were on that search team that we had the great privilege of meeting with and praying with. But if you back it up long before that, Danielle and I, along with our children, were serving in a community that we loved and in a church that we loved deeply. And there was a process of months in our life, long before, long before Dawson was on my radar whatsoever, where there began to be this sense of restlessness. And I expressed that to Danielle. And I said, we just need to pray because this restlessness might be sin. It, it might be a, a itch. You know, the grass is greener on the... So we had to discern through that process. And it was months of praying, God, we want to be faithful to where you have placed us. Allow us to be planted and, and give ourselves to the church that we're serving and the community that we're serving, a community and church that we love deeply, still love deeply. So that was a process of months where we were praying that and asking the Lord to give us guidance. And the, the crux of the prayer was this, as long as you want us to be here, we wanna be faithful, but when you desire for us to not, we want to be open to your will. It came to this moment where I, on a Monday morning, I said, Daniel, I think this week we just need to fast and to pray. And it was in light of Romans 12 too, to be able to test and approve God's will for our lives, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And so we committed to just fast and to pray, and that came to a culmination where we were sitting down at the end of, of that time of, of fasting and praying at a, at a Mexican restaurant, of all things. So, uh, which is in those documents, it will also say that's probably not the best place to break a fast, but that's neither here nor there. But uh, Danielle and I, we were just talking about this, and there was a clarity to both of us that God was closing a chapter of our ministry and we looked at each other and said I think we feel we don't understand this but we feel that he might be opening another chapter two hours later 
Two hours later, in my office, I was made aware that Dawson did not have a pastor. And it was instantly then that I called Danielle and I said, I wonder, and that started that process. Now, don't misunderstand me. I did not become your pastor instantly then. (laughs) This is not a spiritual rabbit's foot, but it was months of asking the Lord to guide us that comes to a culmination of fasting and praying. And, And our heart was not our will, but your will be done. And in, in that specific narrative, he, he showed us after months that it could be this church. And two years later, we are so grateful that we're here and have the great privilege of not only living in this community, but serving as your pastor here at Dawson. And the means by which God opened that door was through fasting and prayer. And there's some of you in this room that are seeking God's guidance You feel a restlessness, there are opportunities in your career, and I want to commend to you fasting and praying. There are some of you that have a grandson or a son, a granddaughter or a daughter who is living in a foreign land, and I want to call you to fasting and to prayer that they would come to their senses. There's some of you in this room that have sin that has not only so easily entangled you, but it is suffocating you. It is sin that you need to repent of and you need to grieve over and you sort of confess it, but you confess it with fingers crossed behind your back. And I'm commending to you and calling you to fast and to pray and to weep and to grieve over that sin. I'm calling you to fast and to pray for the future of our country, to fast and to pray for the future of our church, to fast and to pray, not because it's exceptional, but because it was the ordinary invitation of the Christian life and expectation. Not that we're constantly fasting and praying, but it is a part of the ordinary vocabulary of our Christian life. And I think at times we miss the voice of God and the clarity of his will because there's so much noise And we move from day to day without an examined life and fasting pauses you. And it says to God, here I am. Strip me, reveal hidden sin and pride and use me for your glory. I think many of us do not fast and pray, and the reason is, is we're really not desperate to hear from the Lord. I think many of us don't fast and pray because we would rather continue in our comfort and to continue in our pleasure and to continue to keep things as is. And there's something about fasting and praying all throughout Scripture that is ultimately saying, we as your children are desperate for you to move in us, to transform us, to shape us, to lead us, to guide us. So we will physically hunger so that you, the bread of life, would spiritually feed us. So when you fast, Jesus says, let us pray.